Hi, Javier. How are you? Good. How about you, Harry? I'm great, thank you. I have just spilt my coffee everywhere, so you might have to give me a second while I go. Hello, I'm Harry Robinson, and welcome to the All Out Attack podcast. Hey, guys. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm sorry uh, my computer was acting weird, so I just rebooted it. Today, my guests are former Drug Enforcement Special Agents Javier Peña and Steve Murphy, agents who have travelled all over the world conducting drug busts and tackling narcotic rings, but are most famous for their vital role in taking down the infamous Colombian drug kingpin, Pablo Escobar, with their story portrayed on Netflix's hit series, Narcos. God, this is surreal. (laughs) I I read the full book about you two about a week ago, and now you're just like there. Bunkered in our respective homes thousands of miles apart, and following some coffee-related difficulties, I was ready to delve into the lives of the men who hunted down the world's first, and most famous, narco-terrorist. I hope you enjoy. It's been surreal, this whole pandemic. Is it as surreal as being over in, in Bogota and, and Medellin? Or... Mm, no, this is pretty easy. <laughs> is it? <laughs> well, yeah. You've got creatures. You know, uh, you know, the bad part for us is all our speaking and book events have been postponed till the pandemic is over. So uh, we've done a couple of virtual things. We're doing a lot of podcasts and oh, yeah, talk to some local schools and things like that. But oh, good then, uh, not making a lot of money here. Oh, I, I can imagine. Well, hopefully the, the book sales um, build up, you know, to, to promote it. Uh, Manhunters, uh, how we took down Pablo Escobar. I've read it cover to cover and it was fantastic um what actually brought you to because you were i I read something about you you were both quite quiet for a while after pablo escobar's death up until narcos the tv show rolled around what kind of compelled you to write your side of the story in complete you know factual without any poetic license no all there in its gritty glory well, you know, throughout our entire careers, people have told us, you know, you guys should do something with your story about Escobar. You should write a book. You should do a movie. You know, honestly, and, and not trying to sound overly humble, but that's not why, why we did the case. We did the case because that's what we were assigned to do. And to be just real honest about the whole thing, when that case was over, we just moved on to the next case. You know, it, it was, we knew it was a very big case. It was probably, a, the, you know, the case of a career, the case of a lifetime. But uh, when we both transferred back to the United States, it wasn't like you, you know, you went into your new office and, and looked at people and said, hey, I killed Pablo Escobar. What'd you do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just, that was your job. Yes. So um, um, towards the end of our careers, uh, a friend of mine in Washington, D.C. Is a, is a producer. And he wanted to introduce us to a couple of, of Hollywood producers. And so I went and met him. And, and both of those guys wanted to take our story and make a political statement out of it. And that's not at all what Javier and I are about. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just kind of gave up on the idea. And we just really thought all along, nobody cared to hear this story about Pablo Escobar. It happened way too long ago. It was too old. And um, that's when a guy called us named Eric Newman. Now, Eric is the creator of Narcos on Netflix. Yeah. When we first met him, nobody mentioned Netflix. We had no idea that Netflix was going to be involved with this. But... Uh, we talked to, to Eric the first time we turned him down and uh, you know, we're pretty sure he probably fell out of his chair because we've learned that people will sell their souls to be on television. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so long story short, um, he came to Washington. I met with him and two writers and of course Javier's involved in all this. And, mm. and we did our research on it before they got here. And we found out that these guys were uh, very successful, well-educated, came from uh, Hollywood families um, and when we met, you know, our personalities clicked and, and Eric promised us, uh, well, he asked a question. He said, why are you guys so hesitant to do anything with your story? And we told him, we said, the last thing we wanted to happen was somebody would try and glorify a mass murderer, you know, the world's first narco terrorist, a guy named Pablo Escobar. And he promised us, he said, if we do this show, I promise you, we will not glamorize or glorify him at all. And in our opinion, you know, that's, that's, he lived up to his word. Oh, definitely. So now. Our contracts allowed us to write a book later. And after we saw Narcos, you know, it's, it's amazing because especially in Europe, people think they see it on TV. It's true. I mean, it's, it's amazing what questions we get asked when we come over to, the, especially the UK. We love coming over there. Yeah. We've done two, two UK tours and 
we were hoping to do another one this year, but it looks like it might be next year before it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we just wanted to tell the true story. We love the show, the series, Narcos. I mean, it, you know, it really paid off for us in the long run, but you know, this is our fifth year of our world tour, uh, just going around telling the true story of Pablo Escobar. So that's what our book does as well as our stage show. And, and you know, uh, as you saw in Manhunters, it tells a little bit more about our personal lives, how we grew up. You know, we were both uniformed police officers before we became federal agents and all that. So that's how it all came about. When you, I mean, you brought up about, because uh, it does cover a lot about how you grew up, which I really do like in the fact that it's not a, the book isn't a, a Wikipedia article about the hunt for Pablo Escobar. It's almost an evolution of the two of you as as special agents. And then, you know, coming to terms and, along with the Colombian police who which i really do appreciate the fact that the both of you do make it very clear that the colombian national police should get a lot of the credit for uh especially because it's very easy in a hollywood sense to you know you see that photo of you there holding um pablo like a big game hunter and they can just go oh well this american killed pablo escobar um but going back to your the both of you growing up and both of you um, being assigned in in you know Texas and Miami uh, respectively, was did it feel like a real huge step or a huge leap of faith to move from these kind of localized drug uh, dealers and and you know heroin busts and stuff like this to like the the kingpin of all drug kingpins? Well, you know what, Harry, uh, when we uh, when we got to Colombia and uh, you know. I get there 88, Steve gets there 91, but we were, uh, we were assigned uh, the case. We really didn't say, hey, we're gonna go after Pablo Escobar. Yeah, we get there and the, and the boss, you know, first time he says, are you gonna work uh, Pablo Escobar case? So I did not know who really Pablo Escobar was until we started, you know, uh, digging into him and, uh, but and also you know we we tell a lot of our you know audiences we were invited by the colombian national police to assist in the search of pablo escobar we just didn't go to Medellin and say hey we're here to find escobar so we're invited and uh, the boss assigned us the case so usually we we got to learn uh, everything and we made a point i mean we're we're good workers so we learned everything about the Pablo Escobar, you know, his family, his, his friends, his associates. And one thing that helped us is that uh, we created a strategy, which we uh, went after the people all over the world that were also associated with Pablo Escobar, the people in Miami. You know, he had a lot of European connection, he had uh, Canadians. Uh, so he had his, his empire was all over the world. So basically we, we worked, you know, people, the, uh, the, the strategy was that you just do not go after one guy, Pablo Escobar, you gotta go after everybody, you know, the, the money launderers, the distributors, the people that are buying the airplanes uh, for him. So uh, in, in that sense of the word, our strategy really was, I think the first time in uh, in drug enforcement history that we used that type of strategy. And you know what, it's led on now where we've learned in other countries are, we're, we're doing the same thing where you go after somebody and you go after, like I said, you need the cooperation of everybody. Yeah, exactly. It's like you've got to, you got to chop down some of the leaves before you get to the, the trunk of the right, tree. Right, to the top, yeah. Um, so you get, you get thrown in to you get assigned to this case, but you get thrown into Colombia, and Colombia is essentially war-torn, not really, in terms of the fact that it's a, a bit of a, there's a couple of ways that you use in the book where it's, I mean, there's car bombs that are going off everywhere, it's a very dangerous place to be at the time. Was there a certain point during your investigation where you kind of thought, whether there was a bit of a turning point, you thought, oh God, this, you know, this is a, as serious or did you know that going in because obviously there was um the murder of uh uh galan the uh presidential candidate there's you know murders of journalists and stuff were, were they the turning points or do you feel 
I don't know, do you feel you're adequately mentally equipped for the task at hand? Um, yeah, and I'll go first. Yeah, there, there were many times we wanted to quit because of the car bombs. The uh, like I said, uh, you brought up uh, Galan. That was a major uh, hit in Colombia where Pablo Escobar uh, had the next president of Colombia killed. Mm -hmm. Remember, Galan was running for president and his platform was to bring back extradition. And Pablo Escobar hated Galan because Pablo Escobar did not want to get extradited to the United States. So while on a campaign trail, uh, 1989, it was a Friday night, Galan was campaigning and Pablo Sicarios had him killed. And it was all because Galan was going to win for president, he was going to be the next president, and he was going to bring back extradition, mm -hmm. which uh, Pablo Escobar hated, but yeah, you you made a point where uh, there was times, yeah, when we wanted to give up because of the, the killings, the sicarios, basically we wanted to let him surrender. However, uh, you know, you'd see innocent people, would see friends of ours get killed, and you know, we just didn't allow it to happen, but there was a lot of times, believe me, uh, especially during the middle of the of the manhunt, where we uh, just uh, said, "Hey, just let him surrender." I'm glad we we never uh, did that. So that makes sense. Was there any points for you, Steve, in particular that I don't know, maybe uh, filled you with regret in a sense that you were in Colombia or or not? No. And you know what? DEA didn't send us there. We volunteered. Both of us volunteered to go down yeah. there. So it's says a lot about us up here, right? But, you know, DEA, the DEA mission, and, and I'm not sure if folks in the UK are aware of this, but DEA's mission is never to go after the users. You know, the, the, our mission is to go after the biggest narcotics traffickers in the world that have a detrimental effect on our country, the United States. So um, the, the unique thing about the Escobar investigation was we didn't just chop off the head of the snake. That's what Javier was just explaining to you we chopped that snake up into little pieces. You know, when, once he was, uh, was dead, to our knowledge, there was only one surviving member of the Medellin cartel and he just passed away here a few months ago. Um, this guy, he did his time in jail, he got out, he's, he had his own Netflix show, he wrote his own book. Uh, he was all over social media, but he just, he went back to jail for some other crimes he committed. He just passed away from cancer, but it's like JP said, there, was, there were times when you, you really just, um, you felt like you were spinning your wheels and, and you kind of get disgusted because you go out on these operations and you're flying in on these helicopter gunships and, you know, of course they hear you coming five minutes before you get there. And there were places that we would hit where uh, the, the coffee, the steam would still be coming off the coffee in the coffee cup or the cigarette would still be lit in the ashtray. And there were people in the house and, and you know, through... Uh, I guess their fear, they admitted, yeah, he was just here, but he heard you guys coming. So there were a lot of times when we felt like we were getting close, but we just couldn't capture him. Um, and then, you know, one of Pablo's uh, main ways of killing people was car bombs. Mm -hmm. And you just never knew when the car bombs were going to go off. I can't tell you how many of our friends, Columbia National Police officers, were killed just simply because they were in the trucks or the cars that were driving by it as a car bomb went off. Um, and my wife, you know, she's back in Bogota all by herself. And she's a tough girl. I mean, she didn't need me, you know, there to protect her. She can protect herself. But, um, you know, you're always worried about her safety. And, and, of course, in October of 93 is when we adopted our first daughter down there. And, and Javier and I are still living in Medellin. So my family's, you know, I have two sons here in the States that stayed in the States. But, you know, I couldn't be with my new daughter. And, and it was just a variety of things. Um, we worked unbelievably long hours. This lasted for 18 months. Uh, we, Javier and I weren't allowed to leave country at the same time. One of us always had to be in Colombia to, to address the Escobar issue. So, Well, that led to, uh, um, how, which I mean, shows the camaraderie between you two and the great relationship. Uh, so when uh, Javier had to stay over at Christmas, didn't he? That was... He did. And allowed me to go home with my family to come to the United States. And uh, but, you know, and that wasn't fair to him either because he's got family back in the States that he wanted to visit. He's very close with his dad back then. So it was just, it was a rough situation, but, you know, that was your job. And, and honestly, I mean, we didn't sit around and complain about it. You just, you knew what's expected of you. You're a DEA agent. You're working in a foreign country. You're going after the world's biggest cocaine uh, 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 
producer and distributor in the entire world, a man who was responsible for as much as 80% of the cocaine. I mean, think about that. Wouldn't you oh, like man. to have 80% of the podcast market? I know you would, right? <laughs> yeah. So so that's who we were after, you know. And, and do you feel, because he had this, there's this weird, he had this cult of personality essentially in, in Colombia. I mean, there's, there's, almost harrowing uh, images of when his funeral happened and people were storming the coffin and they wanted to get one last touch of him because they really held him in such high esteem. Did the fact that everyone in Medellin who was, everyone had almost this kind of cult for Pablo to keep him safe and he could hide in plain sight because people would help him. Did that make stuff difficult during the investigation? Yeah, it, it did. And uh, like Steve mentioned, you know, when we'd go out there, you know, we'd, we'd barely miss him. You know, the coffee was still hot. Uh, but what we found out, especially during uh, the, the t when he escaped, when he escaped, when he escaped from his uh, La Cateral, you know, mm -hmm. which was his prison, his, he built his, mansion, his country club, right? It wasn't a prison. <laughs> uh, we had chances of getting him right away because he was very vulnerable he was he was uh, running he wasn't organized however the people were helping him out the people were hiding him they'd uh, uh, warn him you know hey the cops are coming uh, there uh, they would uh, give him shelter they tell him how to get out so it, it was very difficult it was not the words maybe the middle part when we started seeing people call and you know one thing we did is we uh we came up with an 800 number you know 1-800 call for pablo and you'll get a reward and you get a new life so we had a lot of call-ins a lot of people calling us giving us with information and then we started arresting some of his close associates and or, you know, killing. And when I talk about killing, I'm not talking about, you know, indiscriminate. You know, I'm talking about when you go out to arrest one of those Sicarios, they would fire, they would shoot at you. They were not going to go down, <laughs> you know, easy. So there was a lot of violence. Uh, but people started realizing that, hey, this Pablo is, is going to be going down. You know, I have a chance to make some money. I have a chance to maybe take my family out of Colombia, give them a, a better life. Uh, so we started getting a lot of information because of that, you know, 800 number. And we had it installed at, at our search block, which is the base of operations that Steve and I lived in. And, 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 and you know, funny, it's, uh, well, it's not funny back then, but the the call-ins would be hey we want to talk to the gringos you know steve or i because they knew that the government was going to pay so we'd have to go out and uh, meet all those new informants you know we didn't want, we didn't let them come into the base we always went out uh, and we used to meet them at the bus station in medellin which was the biggest bus station in colombia so uh, and obviously we were also afraid for our lives because you know it, it was we're always thinking it's a setup against us. It's going to be a hit on us. So we were very careful. But uh, yeah, the, the, getting back, in, you know, to the theory, you know, and uh, of Pablo Escobar with the people, and you know, I mean, I'm sure you've heard Pablo Escobar was a Robin Hood, right? Yeah, you heard that, right? Yeah, well, so, I don't believe uh, it, but yeah, I've heard the. <laughs> and I'm glad you don't believe it. Yeah, we we dispel that myth. You know, we. We don't adhere to that myth, you know, like we said, hey, Robin Hood didn't kill the president of Colombia, didn't put a bomb on a commercial airline. So that was a myth. He did help people, but he always expected something in, in return. I mean, uh, but yeah, the people were helping him until they found out he was invincible. Then we started getting a lot of help from the people. And it's quite harrowing the fact that people were willing to help him because, I mean, there's a... Uh, there's a really dark moment in the book where you talk about the uh, bombing of the shopping centres or uh, where quite a lot of people, uh, thousands of people got injured and about 60 people died or something during uh, this huge bomb that went off and there was a woman audibly blaming Pablo Escobar for the, the bombing. So people knew that he was he was behind a lot of these dastardly acts yet people were still 
you know, behind him. Uh, why do you think that was? Or well, an idea. <laughs> you know, the 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 hardworking, honest, taxpaying citizens of Columbia were not behind Escobar. They were just afraid of him because they had seen what he was capable of. And that particular bombing you're talking about uh, was on 15th Street there in Bogota. And that, the mall where he set that car bomb off, the whole front of it, was a, it was a city block large, the whole mall was. Mm -hmm. And the whole front of it was glass. So you yep. can imagine when that bomb went off, all the shards of glass were just maiming and, and killing people. And, you know, you go down there and you see these sites and you first come in and, and you're seeing, you know, you can see the smoke, you can hear the sirens, you can hear people screaming and crying and it's just pandemonium, it's just chaotic. And then you come in, you see damaged vehicles, and then you start seeing body parts. And then you see a fireman or a policeman carrying the lifeless body of a, of a child, an infant or a toddler, you know, who hasn't even had a chance at life. And, and you know, I don't understand why anybody would be like that. I just, I don't understand what goes on up here uh, to make a person so callous and so cold-hearted that they're willing to do something like that. And that particular bomb, uh, the whole point of that car bomb was across the street was a drugstore, the Cali cartel, the Rodrigo Sorueva brothers owned a chain of drugstores in Colombia. And they just wanted to blow up the drugstore, but they killed all these innocent people who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So you, you see things like that. But then up in Medellin, like the road leading up to the prison, there were people that lived along that road. He sent his Sicarios out and talked to them and said, hey, you know who's staying up here in the prison? If you see a strange person or a strange car that you've never seen here before, a phone call could result in cash in your pocket. Well, if he didn't make the phone call, you know what that would result in? Not only are they going to kill you, but they're going to kill your entire family. Because when Pablo killed somebody, he just didn't kill the one person. He sent a message. And you know what? Through, uh, through just example after example after example of that happening, you know, people were just genuinely afraid of this guy because he was very psychotic. Or he was willing to kill anybody and everybody to get his own way. Do you, I mean, you mentioned the Sicarios there. We should probably explain as well. The Sicarios were mostly teenage lads from Colombia uh, or very young lads. Um, and, and there's a point in the book where uh, you apprehend uh, one of the Sicarios uh, and he essentially goes, you know, I've made enough money to, to set my mum up and get my mum out of the slums of Medellin you know, that's good enough for me. I'll, I'll die for Pablo Escobar. Do you, is there a point, and I'm bearing in mind as well, the, the average age for these Sicarios was like 21, 22. It was, you know, it was a short but fast life to kind of set up their parents. Do you feel that, is there any sense of remorse or sorrow for the fact that these kids were essentially brainwashed or even though they were on the opposing side to... The both of you well you know what that's an interesting point did we I, I mean, you know they're 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 young kids but i you know i mean but once you uh i mean when you make a decision you know uh and, and that's a car you're referring to when i interviewed him we helped arrest him he, i think he confessed he was 15 years old but he had already killed 10 police officers at 100 dollars a head so a human life for a hundred dollars, uh, 15 years old, you're, you know what you're doing, you know what they're paying you, uh, brainwash, I don't know, probably, I mean, that's, I've never heard of that, yeah, but you're probably right, Harry, they were brainwashed, but how do you, they idolize Pablo Escobar, they, they worshiped him, they wanted to be like other Sicarios. They wanted to work for the boss. They wanted, you know, and uh, we talked about Pablo Escobar, that personality that he had, that, you know, he did have that charisma, you know, and uh, when he'd go to recruit uh, Sicarios, one of his uh, signature handshakes was he'd hug them. He'd hug them, you know, Sicarios wore an eye and obviously, you know, money. Uh, and a lot of these young kids, you know, grew up in a, in poor neighborhoods. Uh, so Pablo gave them money and, you know, they were able to take this one in particular, told me, hey, you know, they were, they were in poverty, gave money to his mother. She now had a house. She had food. 
So in what he says, you know, my allegiance is to Pablo. I says, I, I will kill and die for Pablo Escobar. Uh, he pretty much said my life expectancy, I'll be dead by 22, 23 years old. So you had all these young thugs who wanted to work for Pablo Escobar and who do not hesitate in taking a human life. I mean, yeah. And I just, I'll always recall that interview in that he just, it was just a matter of life. He said, you know what? Uh, yeah, hey, I get a hundred bucks, you know, I don't care who I kill. It's a, as long as there's a police uniform, I always remember, you know, I said, how did you, he said, I just, you know, go on the back. That way I don't have to see them, shoot them in the back, take off. And then, uh, then I told him my tally at the end of the day, I say, hey, I killed three or four. I get four, I get 400 bucks. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So that's that sick way of, of thinking. However, Pablo Escobar utilized that. And uh, yeah, yeah, Pablo paid them. They, they work for Pablo. They bragged, hey, I'm working for Pablo Escobar. So it was a way of life for all those young kids who, who turned uh, criminals. So, uh, I mean, yeah, brainwashed or not, I mean, they they were uh, they were killing innocent people, and I mean, there is a sense as well. You did say they're going around the back, so they don't have to see the face. So there isn't there isn't an emotional attachment there as well. The fact that they know what they're doing is wrong, and they don't want to have to associate themselves with yeah, it, yeah. They, they know what is wrong, and I'm just I mean, this particular one, but other ones they kill you in front of your face. They didn't yeah. care. It was just this one, I guess. He just that was his. Uh, his motive. He said that way he don't have to look at him. He said, you know, walk be behind him, you know, and just shoot him. And to me, that's, I go at the end of the day and I, I get my money. But a lot of other Sicarios didn't have that. They didn't care. They'd shoot you in front, they'd shoot you, and they'd go after your family members. Well, I mean, speaking of family members, there was a point, uh, I think, in the book where you talk about the, a car bomb. Um, well, it's, actually, it's not about family. When, when a car bomb uh, went off that you used to both uh, thought may have been aimed at you uh, at some point. Is that yeah, Harvey and I, I had gone to pick him up at his apartment and uh, we were going to the Tech and Dama Hotel to meet an informant. Mm -hmm. And as I'm sitting out in front of his apartment, you know, he's, he's coming out. I heard on our, on our just car radio that a bomb had just gone off at the Tech and Dama. Now, there's, there was no indication that that was that we were the targets of that. You know, we contacted the informant and set up a meeting. You know, later in the week so he could get away from there. But um, it does make you wonder. <laughs> well, I mean, you. The, it's worth mentioning as well for people who don't know. Your both of you have a hundred thousand dollar bounties on your head, or was it three hundred thousand dollar? Three hundred thousand dollar bounties on your head. Uh, Pablo Escobar has, has mentioned you by name over. Uh, over a phone call, hasn't he? You, the both of you were wanted gringos, as he put it. So it, it's very. Was there ever a point where you maybe feared for, like Connie or or any of you know close friends for the fact that when Pablo wants to send a message, he will send a message, and if the message he wants to send is to you, then he'll write for the family members. No. Um... I, honestly, I never worried about her. And, and, you know, I mentioned earlier, she's a tough lady. She really was. Um, when I first met her, I used to ride motorcycles and, you know, she owned her own motorcycle. I'm thinking, how can you not fall in love with a woman that owns her own motorcycle, right? So we used to ride bikes together, but uh, it was as much her idea for us to move from Miami to Columbia as it was mine. Um, you know, she's a registered nurse and she always enjoyed the, the, I call it the gross parts of the hospital, the trauma centers and the ICUs and the emergency rooms and all that kind of stuff that, you know, I can go out and kick front door with a raid team and be fine. But that stuff that goes on in the hospital, just, <laughs> I think it's kind of sick uh, <laughs> to be honest with you. But, uh, and I'll, I'll just tell you a, a very true story about that $300,000 bounty. The biggest threat I ever faced from that bounty was that she would kill me in my sleep because I was worth more dead than I was alive. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, Connie seems to have been a bit of a rock throughout the entire throughout the entire book, and I and I read in a in an interview as well that because in the show Narcos, uh, Connie goes home, mm -hmm. and apparently she was quoted saying, 
that's outrageous. I'd never go home. Um, oh. I'd never leave you in Colombia. And I think there's a point at this near the start of the book, or right in the start of the book, where you talk about um, your car being stopped, and she and you you're outnumbered by these mysterious people that have stopped your car, and she out and out goes, "If you get out and you give me this gun, I, you know we might be able to take them if I get them," which is just baffling. I think you've got to have a set of this crazy mindset and a set of balls to <laughs> adapt to that lifestyle. I think. Absolutely. Um, but in terms of, I mean, you mentioned earlier on about uh, the glorification of Pablo. Uh, you know, decades after his death, there is still almost, not a cult of personality, but glorification of Pablo Escobar. I see people with Pablo Escobar t-shirts. Uh, there's a there's a local company uh, in Liverpool that, that sells a, t- a very popular t-shirt that has Pablo Escobar's face on. It's almost like a fashion statement. What do you think of the fact that this man was a villain and this man killed a lot of people and you, you tried so hard to kind of convey this message through the media that this person should not be glorified and it shouldn't be, you know, rock and roll. The fact that he would was so ruthless, yet he's still kind of being glorified in certain aspects of society. Well, you know what? We go uh, here in the States, we do a lot of law enforcement conferences. And you'll see cops show up with T-shirts on that have Pablo's face on the front of it. And, and you know, we think it's funny. Um, but, you know, you look at Javier and I, I mean, you can see us on the screen. Who the heck wants our face on a T-shirt? So if they want Pablo, that's fine. The truth is, you know, you – we go out and tell the true story. We want the world to know the truth about Pablo. There's nothing, nothing – Robin Hood about him whatsoever. He was no kind of, of hero to anybody. He was a sadistic mass murderer is exactly what he was. The world's first narco-terrorist. Think about that. What's a narco-terrorist? It's just basically a narcotics trafficker that employs terroristic activities in his drug business. And that's exactly what Pablo did. Well, he you defined know, the term. I'm sorry? <laughs> he defined the term by being the first. There had to be he a did. name for him because he was so... He did. Yeah. So it's... if. You know, there are people out there that still think Adolf Hitler is some kind of hero. I mean, you talk about a mass murderer. Here's a guy that tried to wipe out an entire ethnic group. Uh, people think Che Guevara is a, a, a big folk hero. They're nothing more than, than anarchists that are, you know, out for themselves. They're not out for other people. So um, that's, you know, the, the nice thing about the free world is you make up your own mind what you want to think and who you want to follow. And if that's who they think their hero is, I'm okay with it. I, I don't have a problem with that. It's, I think it's ridiculous, and I think they're very ill-informed about who they're supporting. We get through our website and through our social media sites, I mean, we get threatening emails from people. We get uh, messages from people that um, think that Pablo is still some kind of hero, and, you know, they, you, you know we're the bad guys. So, yeah, the world's a screwed-up place. Are these Colombian people or ill-informed? Americans or or otherwise? Uh, to my knowledge, we haven't gotten any from any Colombians. Uh, we get them from Americans and we get them from all over the rest of the world. Um, we just got one yesterday, uh, Some somebody from India, you know, and, and this was kind of a surprise to us. Our biggest fans come from the country of India, believe it or not. We, Javier and I went over there. We did shows in three different cities there and and wherever we travel around the world, if there are people in the audience from India, they will stick around after the show to meet us and ask for pictures and autographs, stuff like that. So our biggest friends come from the country of India, closely followed by Europe, especially the UK. But this one came, it kind of surprised me that someone from India sent us this nasty note. I mean, they talk about, you know, they want to shoot us, they want to cut our heads off and shit down our throats and stuff like that. And it's <laughs> sick people. In the world. I, I mean, on the flip side of it, though, if you, uh, I mean, there's points in the book, I don't want to, you know, carry on sharing every bit of information from the book. There, there's a point, there's points in the book where uh, after the death of Pablo, people are quite profoundly uh, overwhelmed when they see you in particular, Steve, but I imagine you, you both get that because of what you've done to help bring down Pablo Escobar. Uh how much have you got of that, of the fact that people are just so unbelievably grateful that you brought down someone that caused so much pain? JP? Well, yeah, yeah. Let me, 
Yeah, we were, uh, like I said, a after Pablo Escobar gets, uh, gets killed, I mean, uh, the majority of Colombians liked it. The majority of Colombians were fed up with the car bombs, with the discriminant killings. Uh, you know, the go government of Colombia awarded Steve and I uh, medals. You know, they gave us a special commendation, which had never been done before. So we have that. They had a little ceremony. Uh, so they acknowledged us. And, uh, uh, but the majority were very, very thankful. We, had, we still have a lot of good friends. You know, obviously Pablo had a following and, 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 you, and you're right, Barry, you know, when, when he died, uh, the coffin, they broke it out. They're parading it down the streets. People, I mean, tons of people uh, are, are there worshiping him. So that following, but the majority were happy because they knew that, you know, innocent people would, would, would not die anymore. So uh, there's, uh, you know, I, you know, I, and I got to just say the, the majority were, were, were happy with us where, yeah, well, and we still have a lot of friends. Uh, we've been back uh, to Colombia. I mean, they don't know us by face. They know, and, you know, uh, but you know what, we, we like talking about this, uh, Harry, because this is history. And we lived it, we were there, and we want people to know what actually happened. And you know what, I'm glad you brought up the point that we, uh, we acknowledge the Colombian National Police. Uh, a lot of times people don't acknowledge that. They think they're, they were corrupt. They're, you know, I mean, at the beginning we had some corruption, but you know, it's one of the, some of the bravest people that, uh, that worked, some of the bravest people that we knew, they, they knew they could get killed and a lot of them did. So. Uh, I, I think they were, I mean, everybody was happy, you know, uh, the bombing stopped, you know, and I think Steve says it best, stop for what, two weeks and then <laughs> went out again and then the other cartels took it over and, you know, we're in the same boat right now, Harry. You, um, when the, well, when the uh, other cartel took over, it, it's a very stark obviously you you in in the tv show for anyone who hasn't seen the tv show you play a, an instrumental part in the cali cartel but you weren't explicitly involved with the cali cartel way in terms of investigating uh the, yeah in, in real quick and i didn't understand hear that well but yeah the cali cartel was instrumental they financed a vigilante group called los pepes yes they financed them Los Pepes were made up of, I guess, uh, sicarios that Pablo's bosses were killed. Moncada Gallano, the underling guys who worked for them got together, Pablo killed them. So they were going after Pablo's uh, family. They wanted to kill as many family members and they started playing dirty, putting bombs, assassinations. They, but again, in the end, they were being financed by the Cali cartel. And real quick, Cali cartel hated Pablo. Pablo hated Cali. It was all over turf wars. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, yeah, in, in Netflix, they try to, uh, you know, explain that situation. And in real life, it is true. And in real life, it was very violent. Uh, Pablo, you know, Cali cartel put a car bomb at a house in building, at a building where Pablo's family was. Imagine putting a car bomb and his little girl, his daughter, was seriously injured in that car bomb. So you can imagine what Pablo's retaliation on the Cali cartel was. So well, she, lost, she lost her hearing, didn't she? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Did, yeah. Is there a part of you, I want to touch on Los Pepe's again afterwards, but is, relating to that, is there a part of, for either of you, um, the I know you've had some problems with uh, Pablo's son in the past in terms of the fact that he outright tries to claim certain things happened when historically they didn't. But uh, is there a part of you that kind of feels sorry for Pablo's family for essentially being dragged into a, a drug war? Or do you feel that they were assailants in it? Well, um first of all let's just set the scenario so when pablo married his wife tata um she was 13 years old yeah he's 25 
Absolutely. You know, in every country in the world, that's called every country in the world is called pedophilia. So on, on top of him being this murderer, drug dealer, you know, he's a pedophile. Um, she came out with a book last year and said that she actually had an abortion at age 13 because he got her pregnant when she was 12 years old. Holy cow. I mean, think about that. I've got, you know, I've got four children, two daughters, two sons. And right now I have five granddaughters. I can't imagine a 25 year old man wanting to date my 12 or 13 year old daughter or granddaughter. You know, there would be a special reception for somebody like that came around my house. Yeah. <laughs> um, now is this, these kids, you know, they had no choice because of who their parents are. So um, I do have a little compassion for them, uh, especially Manuela, the daughter, you know, and we just really don't talk about her because she was so young and innocent when all that happened. Uh, I just can't imagine how detrimental that's been to her life. But uh, the, the wife, you know, she knew what was going on. I mean, this guy, he's a multi-billionaire, not a millionaire, but a multi-billionaire. She's enjoying all the fruits of his illegal activities. You know, she's assisting where she can to, to try to keep him out of jail and, and so forth. So uh, no compassion for her whatsoever. She knew what she was involved with and she chose to stay. The son, uh, we happen to know, and Javier was actually there when this happened, uh, the son was with his dad one time when they killed the Columbia police officer and they went to the policeman's house and killed him in front of his family. So <clears throat> did the kid have any choice whether he was to go there or not? I don't know that, but I do know his, what his reaction was the day that his dad was killed. And he made a lot of threats that were all recorded on phone conversations, but he, he was going to kill the gringos. He was going to kill the Columbia national police. He was going to retaliate against the government of Columbia, things like that. Well, now he's, you know, I guess he thinks he's matured more. Uh, he's on the speaking circuit just like we are. Uh, we hear stories about the message that he's trying to send out that his father committed suicide and, and we'll call B on that, BS on that immediately because it's not true. I don't care what he says. I don't care what anybody else says. They weren't there. I wasn't there, but I was there immediately after the fact. Um, and we examined the body and so forth. And, and we know what really took place that day. And it's, you know, the story we tell is the truth, not what, He's trying to tell. You know what? If my dad was Pablo Escobar, I might try and change the legacy too and create these myths and these falsehood stories that he wasn't really quite as bad a guy. It's nothing more than a lie. That's, that's exactly what it's called. You can call it a fabrication. You can call it whatever word you choose, but the word is, it's called a lie. It's a lie. Well, it touched on, I mean, you brought up his, his death then. Uh, obviously, he didn't commit suicide. He was uh, pursued by the Columbia National Police. Uh, I think special mention has to go to, well, well uh, Hugo Martinez was leader of Search Block, wasn't he? And his son essentially found Pablo Escobar through tracking. I, I mean, uh, Juan Pablo, Pablo's son, is the, the breadcrumb trail that led the police to Pablo as he was getting desperate. Um, what was that day like for... I'll ask you, Steve, first, because it's a different story for Javier. But. Well, it was <clears throat> after Pablo was, you know, well, first of all, I was with the other Americans at the base when, you know, and other Americans I'm talking about, the U.S. Army's okay. Delta Force and U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6, and the, even the CIA was there with us. Um, and I'm talking to them just, you know, casual conversation when I noticed the executive staff for the colonel rushing over to his office. And, and that was a clear indication something was going on. Well, Javier and I had such a good relationship with Colonel Martinez that we could go over to his office and he just, didn't just barge in. You had to be respectful. But, you know, I walked over to the door and, and he motioned for me, come on in. And that's when he was talking to his son and his son had just told him, hey, I just found Pablo and I saw him with, you know, 100% confirmation. I've seen him. He's on the phone in this, in this row house. And the colonel is telling him, you know, use this special unit of guys that Javier and I worked with for the whole 18 months. It's called Dehim. And these are the guys that engaged Pablo in the firefight that day. Uh, he said, you know, contain the situation. Don't let him get away. We're on the way. You know, we're bringing the search block. Well, the search block consists of 600 people. You know, it takes a while to get everybody together, to get the vehicles out there, the trucks and the Jeeps and, and so forth to issue weapons, you know, uh, make assignments. That's not something you do in just a couple of minutes. 
So they went ahead and, and uh, they were worried, you know, we had 100% confirmation Pablo's in there. So they were worried that, that something might happen. Maybe he had an escape route that we weren't aware of. So they went ahead and made entry into this row house. Uh, when they got to the second floor, that's when they engaged Pablo in a firefight. He started shooting at them and they fired back. He made it up to the third floor, jumped out the window onto the roof of a two-story row house behind him. This was surprising. He only had one bodyguard that day. Here's a guy who at one point had as many as 500 Sicarios protecting him. And on the day he died, only had one, which mm -hmm. is a testament mm -hmm. to the progress that was being made against his organization. So his bodyguard jumps out first. He runs across the roof. Uh, the police tell him to drop his weapons. And you got policemen on the ground. He sees them. He fires at them. And they shoot him and kill him. He falls off the roof. Pablo jumps out that window. He knows that his Limon, his bodyguard, has already been killed. He knows that the cops are coming in to that third story window and that he's going to be caught in a crossfire. Or at least that's what I believe he knew. Uh, he's trying to make his way across the roof. The cops get to the third floor window. They order him to drop his weapons. He turns around and fires at them and the police catch him in a crossfire. That's the day he's killed. Now, when it came across the radio, you know, it, the major that was in charge of the operation made the statement, Viva Colombia, Pablo is dead. Well, it's a lot of cheering, high-fiving, back-slapping going on in the office. But you know what? We had been to situations before where we thought we had Pablo captured. And so even though you're excited that maybe this is finally over, you still got a little bit of hesitation in the back of your mind that, let's go confirm this before we get too excited, you know, before we give it up and say, okay, it's over with. So I run back to the, I need to call my boss in Bogota and tell him what's going on. Our boss, Joe Toft. Um, I can't get a hold of them in the embassy. You know, they're putting me on hold. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, wait. Finally, Joe comes, comes up on the radio. He tells me that Pablo has been killed. <laughs> and what had happened, and this is a testament to the relationship that DEA had with the Colombian National Police. The head of the Colombian National Police, the first person he called was Joe Toff to tell him that Pablo Escobar was dead. So, you know, I'm, we're having a little conversation and the boss says, hey, your job is to get out there and confirm that this is Pablo, no mistakes. Well, I go grab my gear out of, the, out of the bunkhouse. I come running out. The entire search block is gone. They're already on their way out to the site. I don't have a car. I don't have access to a car. I don't even know how to rent a car, <laughs> you know, in Medellin, Colombia. Um, and the only people in the base are the guards. So I'm, I'm, a million things are going through your mind. And lo and behold, here comes Mar Colonel Martinez driving back up. He's got his driver and his bodyguard in his Jeep. He wanted to get his video camera. So he, he, he yells at me, Stick, what are you doing? They had a hard time saying my name's Steve, so it came out as Stick. Everybody called me Stick down there. So he said, Stick, what are you doing? And I said, Colonel, can, can I ride out with you? And he's like, get in the Jeep, let's go. So I go out with Colonel Martinez. It turns out that my camera's the only one that's working that day. So that's why we have all access to all the photographs that we have. Um, but while we're there, you know, the media's starting to show up. Thousands of people were coming in because they just heard this big gun battle and everybody's coming to see and the rumors quickly spread that it was Pablo Escobar and all that. Um, as the media showed up, we, me being the, you know, the gringo out there and, and Javier would have done the same thing. We didn't want to take any credit away from the Colombian National Police. So I got with Lieutenant Colonel Pelias, who was, uh, you know, one of our good friends and, and we discussed the situation. He said, we're going to get you back to the base. <laughs> so they assigned me a security detail, took off to the base. Well, later, you know, a couple hours later, all the search block comes back in. We're still celebrating, but we're also expecting a retaliation attack that night. So there wasn't any drinking and all that going on. You know, everybody was sober. They tripled the guards on the, on the perimeter of the compound. Uh, you already slept with your gun in your bed, but, you know, you were just a little more, more vigilant that night. Uh, because we really thought the Sicarios would attack us. It was the quietest night I ever spent in Medellin, Colombia. But the personal feeling to get out there and confirm that that's Pablo Escobar, honestly, it felt like the weight of the world was lifted off your shoulders. You know, uh, felt like we were actually going to be able to get back to what a normal lifestyle is for a DEA agent living in Colombia. Because uh, what we have been going through for 18 months wasn't normal. But it really was. It was just a great feeling of relation that, you know, we played a little part in helping to bring down the world's first narco-terrorist. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's a part of history. Um, when you, obviously, you're, you're first on the scene with a camera, uh, the only camera that worked that day.
and you take photos and you take photo of Limon on the floor and then you take photo of, you know, confirmation that Pablo's there. Whose idea was it that people should start taking photos with his body? <laughs> oh, I don't know if anybody actually came up with that idea. The, uh, you know, the guys that, that actually killed Pablo were our, that was the unit we worked with. That was the elite group of, of plainclothes police officers. We'd seen so many of our friends killed. Uh, even a major was out on operation, was killed, Major Anyo. Um, and and it, it was just a, it was, it wasn't a party or a festive atmosphere, but it was a very happy atmosphere because, you know, police officer felt like now they're a little bit safer because Pablo's not paying money to have them killed. And so the, you know, first group of, of guys came over and were like, hey, stick, get a, take a picture of us with the body. And so I did that. And then some of the pictures didn't get back to me. The, uh, some of the Columbia police officers didn't want their photos out like that. And, and I understand completely. Uh, but then some of the other guys did. And then after I'm taking pictures, they're like, hey, stick, come on over. Let's get a picture with you. And you kind of get caught up in the moment, uh, to be honest with you. It, you know, I certainly didn't mean to desecrate a body like that. That wasn't the intent, but I'll tell you, I was damn happy that Pablo Escobar was dead. Um, when that picture hit Washington, you know, I, I did catch a lot of grief over it because DEA headquarters wasn't very happy that, you know, here's a DEA agent standing over a dead body smiling. Um, so that's how it all happened. You know, yeah. it's not not one of my prouder moments, but it's kind of paid off here in the long run, to be honest with you. Well, it's it's a notorious photo. I mean, the photo, the real life photo, even ends up in the show. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it flicks to uh, the real life photo. Um, you know, and for me personally, my only regret that day was that my partner Javier wasn't there because, you know, I was in Columbia three years. He was there six and a half years. I was if just anybody about, deserved to be there that day, it was him. I mean, Javier, going to you, uh, do you, obviously, for, for context, you were, you were taken out to Miami uh, for a tip about Pablo Escobar that, you yourself believed was a, a, a nothing tip and, and wasn't going to help. Um, do you feel, do you still harbor any regrets or any bitterness towards the fact no. that you weren't there? No, you know what, Harry, not at all. You know what, it was a great feat. Pablo Escobar was killed. And uh, yeah, I mean, I wish I would have been there. However, you know, the circumstances didn't allow me. And it was, uh, you know, and real quick, I know we're, you know, time here, but uh, the ambassador was basically ordered me to go to Miami. I tried to fight with the ambassador, mm -hmm. try to tell him, sir, we're close, we're, we're on him, uh, we're intercepting him. And uh, the ambassador says, no, you get on the airplane. And you know what the question is? the informant how did it get to our ambassador and that, that one i still do not know and no one seems to remember but i remember the order and it was basically either you go to miami or i kick you out of the country and the ambassadors are like president so all right i made plans and uh the, the informant is sort of a well-known informant i think we've mentioned him his name his nickname is Navigante, who played a big part. And he's the one who did gotcha. He's the one who portrayed Jose Rodriguez Gacha Mexicano, who was Pablo's partner. That's how Gacha ended up getting killed. So he had some credibility. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it's funny now because when I get there and he's in a secret place in a warehouse, you know, so I, you know, they drive me there and, uh, Navigante is on the phone <laughs> and he sees me and he sort of, you know, drops the phone and he's the one who tells me, Javier, they just killed Pablo Escobar. You know what? I didn't even say another word to Navigante. I just turned around. I had an agent with me. We made plans and I was on the airplane coming back and I'll, I'll always remember the airplane. Uh, uh, I was on American Airlines coming back. And I, and you know who was on that airplane? All the media from Miami, from Univision, Telemundo, all the all the Latin media, you know, to cover the story. Of course, I didn't tell them anything, but uh, you know, but like you know, I was there the next day. You know, when Steve congratulated the guys, came back. But you know what? There's no, you know, of course not. You know what? Pablo Escobar was killed, 
I'm glad Steve was there. Like he said, he's the only one with a camera. None of this photos would have existed, I think, right, Steve, uh, without, the, without the camera. So anyway, it was a great feeling. And uh, it, it was, it, it's, it's a great feeling in that Pablo's bar killed a lot of friends of ours, caught, killed a lot of innocent people. So in the end, I think justice was served. Oh, definitely. And the both of you, um, you know, regardless if you, if you missed the firefight or not, or the both of you had huge parts to play in getting justice for those friends that, that you did sadly lose. Um, one thing that is quite striking and that does get mentioned a lot is the fact that when Pablo died, so this is a man who was, uh, you know, the unbelievably rich. Uh, I mean, one of my, one of the most interesting stories I've got is the fact that he built his own zoo imported loads of animals over for his children uh, and now because of his own zoo uh when you imported hippos over colombia now has a hippo population like that's how rich this man is or this man was and then you look at the you know you look at the photos of his dead body or or, or even just the stage is coming to the end of his life he's got this shabby beard he is you know wearing tatty clothes his jeans don't fit him his belly's hanging out uh, he's put on quite a lot of weight. Is that, was it surreal to, to see this man that is essentially like the boogeyman for so long and he's, you know, right at the top and he's organising all these deaths to then see the corpse of just a, a, a shabby middle-aged man, essentially, who doesn't seem like anything special. Is that a surreal uh, image? Um, you know, I never considered it like that. It was just a relief for me. Um, you know, people say, well, what would, you know, why didn't you do something about Pablo when you saw him? I never saw Pablo until the day he was killed. He was already dead by the time I saw him. Um, you know what? I mean, that's, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. That's, I thought it was a very fitting end for a man who was responsible for tens of thousands of murders. Uh, one of his own Sicarios said that Pablo himself, or Pablo was responsible for as many as 50,000 murders. So I think I thought it was a very appropriate end for him, the way he went out. That's right. And, and I agree to it. And, and you, you, you make a good point, Harry. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, fat, ugly, right? The beard, the hair all, all over the place, barefooted. But it just shows he was on the run. He had one Sicario left, you know, and in the beginning had thousands and thousands of people protecting him uh, and uh, well protected, you know, in the end had one, uh, one Sicario left and uh, look at how he went out. So, again, very fitting. I completely agree. Uh, I'll, I'll start to wrap it up for the fact that, you know, I've kept you a while and I'm very grateful for the fact you've come on to talk. I, I just want to bring up, you're both retired now. Obviously, it's a, a you know it was a life of action essentially. I mean, you yourself, Javier, get described as or describe yourself as a bachelor all the way through <laughs> the book. Um, Not anymore, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know, you went on to to do other stuff in the the Caribbean and and stuff like that. Is there a part of you that misses the action, or are you somewhat relieved that you've got a break <laughs> from this constant nonstop? detective work essentially well you know for me it's obviously we do miss the investigations we really really miss the camaraderie and, and the brotherhood sisterhood that's involved with law enforcement you know we tell people it's being a DE agent is not just a job it's not a career it's a lifestyle which affects your entire family I can't tell you how many you know family activities you miss because the job came first just to be quite honest with you but uh, I'll also be honest with you and tell you, I don't miss the BS that goes along with it, the bureaucracy, the, uh, the petty you know, bickering that goes on, the personnel issues, all that kind of stuff. I don't miss any of that crap at all. <laughs> you know, I will say, God bless the men and women of law enforcement. We're proud to, that you're out there protecting us and we're proud to stand with you. That's a big Likewise, yeah, thank you guys. You're out there, you know, protecting us. So we know it's hard times right now. And uh, I, I don't miss the job. I miss the friends that were there, but there's just, uh, I hated paperwork. And I think that's why Steve and I did a lot, did a lot of the paper, right? 
I Javier don't do paper, so <laughs> it worked out. But uh, again, it's uh, we're happy what we're doing now with uh, like said our, our presentations, and again, it's part of history. And once everything gets better, hopefully we'll get on the road again. Fantastic. I'll I'll ask you one last question on a broad sense, then I'll let you go. Um, at the end of the book, uh, it, it you claim that the war on drugs was essentially despite the fact you cut the head off, you know, the head off the Hydra, more heads sprout out and the war on drugs was essentially a failure, as you put it in the book. Um, do you feel like there'll ever be a victory in the war on drugs? A, a mass victory in terms of the fact that it'll stop? You know, and, and let us just preface this by saying this is not a, a slight on law enforcement. Oh, of course, of course. But... We do believe that uh, we as a world, the drug problem has become so big, we as a world cannot arrest our way out of the drug problem. We cannot put enough people in jail to stop the drug problem in the world. You know, unfortunately for us, the United States has the dubious distinction of being the largest consumer nation in the world of illegal narcotics. That's not something we're proud of, but it's the truth. You know, and, and that's what our whole story is about. That's what our book is about, is telling the truth. So... Uh, we still need that law enforcement element out there to protect us, to, to safeguard us from, all, you know, all the evil people that are just waiting to take advantage of us, right? But Javier and I are also big proponents of education at the very earliest age. Uh, here in the United States, we had a program called the D.A.R.E. program in which uh, law enforcement and groups would go into the schools, elementary, junior high schools, and they had a little program they went through. And it, it was to teach kids about the detrimental effects of illegal narcotics. Well, you know, a prior political administration cut the funding for that. Well, I, here in the United States, I can't tell you how many public shows we've done. And, and afterwards, people come up to meet us and they'll say, man, I, I remember going through the D.A.R.E. program. And that that just scared me so bad. It kept me straight. Well, if you got a program that's working with young people, why would you get rid of it? You know, so now private funding has come along and the D.A.R.E. program is back in effect here in the United States. Not, I don't think it's as robust as it used to be. But anyway, that, that's our education thing. Um, DEA has a program called the 360 Strategy that we're familiar with. And it's where they go into these high-risk communities of you know, drug abuse. And they'll, what they try to do is bring all elements of the community together. You've heard the old saying, it takes a community, a community to raise a child. It takes a village to raise a child. Well, that's, what, that's the premise behind it. You're bringing in your law enforcement, your legislators, your housewives, your faith-based community, your doctors, the pharmacists, you're bringing in all elements of a community to attack this problem. The problem is basically one of the basic premises of economics, one of the laws of economics, supply versus demand. As long as there's a demand, there are evil people out there who will provide the supply, right? Well, I think we can all agree to that. And that's what we're seeing throughout the world, but especially here in the United States. So we need to do a better job of addressing the demands. If we could get that demand level down, well then, if there's an overabundance of supply, criminals are not gonna take that route, are they? Believe me, they'll find another route to take. They're not, if you're a marijuana dealer, you're not just a marijuana dealer. These cartels that are out there now, they take advantage of any crime they can to make money. It's all about advancing themselves and their organization financially, as well as through this perceived power they get you know, from being the head of a cartel. So um, I, the, the war on drugs is a huge misnomer, I believe. Uh, look at our, sense, at our situation. We were going after the world's first narco-terrorist, a man who was ranked as the most wanted criminal in the world. And what did we do? We sent two guys. <laughs> that's not a war. It's a joke, right? So that's my two cents on the war on drugs. Have you got any comments, Javier? Yeah. Yeah, basically, as long as there's, you know what, money to be made, guys don't care. Traffickers do not care who gets killed, who gets hurt. Uh, as long as they can move their product, someone's using it, they're, you know, someone's dying. Traffickers do not care because they're making money. And I agree with Steve, we need more education, more people getting involved because, uh, you know, we need help. Fantastic. Well, Steve and Javier, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me i said at the start that it's, it's surreal that i was reading a book about about you and i've you know seen you portrayed on television uh you know 
recently and then you're here <laughs> it's quite <clears throat> it's uh, very surreal but yeah thank you so much uh man hunters uh, how we took down pablo escobar is available uh, at all good book retailers um you said that your tour or especially in the uk is going to be pushed back to next year possibly is that right we're hoping so um you know and i'm not just saying this because you know we're talking to you guys in the uk but it's one of our favorite places to visit. You know, it's, it's not unusual for us to sell out almost every show we do over there, whether it's in Scotland, Ireland, or England. Um, you know, and I don't know if you know, but my, my grandmother on my mother's side, her family immigrated from Essex when she I was, was about five. About that. Yeah. That's yeah. So, it's, you know, I very, very strong ties to, to, to your country. And uh, we have a blast every time we come over there. Well, you don't have the Essex accent. <laughs> uh, I'm a country boy. <laughs> Um, but yeah, up, up until then, or up until the tours, you're going to be doing a lot of podcast uh, uh, appearances, I guess. Uh, is the Joe Rogan appearance uh, set certain? Or? We're still working on that one. Um, but you can, you know, if you want to find out more about us, you can go on our website. It's www.deanarcos.com. Uh, we're all over social media under, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. I think we've got a YouTube and a Vimeo, Vimeo channel. It's all under DEA Narcos. Mm -hmm. And there in England, the uh, headline publishers is the publisher of, of the book Manhunter. So you can go on their website and find out where you can purchase copies of the book if you're interested. Fantastic. Well, the both of you, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me. And yeah, I hope you keep well. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Harry. It's an honor to be on here with yeah. you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Harry. Appreciate it. All right. Bye bye.